Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists, talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week is a special year-end edition that I've simply dubbed the best of 2023. I'm doing something different for this one as the content will be produced by our good friend Jane Gowan from the excellent Music Buddy Podcast. I thought, hey, maybe I shouldn't pick the best stories. Uh, from my 2023 guests. How about a pro like Jane? And she can bring her sense of curation um, along with her own podcast experience. So for this show, it means you're going to hear a single great story from everyone from Carla and Lynette Gillis in episode one, all the way to Charlotte Cornfield in episode 14. And Jane's going to be your guide as she walks us through all these tall tales. And then we'll finish with a surprise at the end, which is kind of my take on the concept of the Music Buddy sessions you hear at the end of each of Jane's podcasts. So before I hand it over to Jane, I want to put in the good word to suggest you all subscribe to her Trey Excellent podcast called Music Buddy that features conversations with so many of the great Canadian musicians and artists you already know and love. So that being said, over to you, Jane. Thank you, Dave. And hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a big fan of this podcast, so it's a thrill to be sitting in the co-host seat and to hang out with you all while we take a glance back on some highlights from the first 14 episodes of Salad Days. One of the things I love about this podcast is how Dave manages to give the listener a really comprehensive and colorful picture of the guest's artistic life or lives by delving into the building blocks of their musical journey from what was on the stove on a Friday night in their childhood home, to what their creative adventures look like today. These are stories based on time and place, connection, friendship, and shared experiences. They uncover the wild, the wondrous, the glorious, and the gritty aspects of life as an indie musician in Canada. The mutual respect and admiration between Dave and his guests is the medium with which each picture is painted, and it's a beautiful thing. When I was deciding which highlights to pick, I tried to choose stories that not only might make you laugh or cry, or both, but also those which give us as vibrant a snapshot as possible. So, let's drop the needle on this record and get started. Plum Tree is hard-rocking sister-songwriters Carla and Lynette Gillis. Fun facts, the Salad Days theme song was written and performed by them, as was the song Scott Pilgrim, which inspired the graphic novel of the same name, and subsequently the film Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, starring Michael Cera. In this episode, Carla and Lynette begin by offering a wonderful warm description of their home growing up, one of a household filled with music and musicians and parents who loved and supported their artistic visions, a place where they could begin expressing themselves creatively while they practiced and honed their rock chops in the basement. Inspired by glam rock and heavy metal and attending their first live show with their older and wilder sister Darlene. But the story that really got me was when they started their band Black Lace and realized that neither of them wanted to sing. So they did what any normal grade school sister rock duo would do. They held auditions. All our early bands, um, we were all just, we were were so focused on our our instrument and nobody ever wanted to sing. Lynette, neither Lynette or I thought of ourselves as singers at all. You know, we could like carry a melody, but especially when you're growing up on metal, like there's a certain kind of singer you think you have to be uh, to to pull that off. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so we just kind of avoided it. We just didn't. We were like, well, we'll just be instrumental. We did. When I was in ninth grade, we auditioned vocalists for, for a band we had called Black Lace. We were going to be playing. It was our first show ever. It was uh, <laughs> uh, the the talent show at our junior high. Lynette was in grade seven. I was in grade nine. Lisa and Angela were at, by then playing with us. And our big goal for that whole 
school year was um, this talent show that was coming up in like April or May or something. And we thought, you know, we should actually, we should, we should, we need a singer for this. So we made an announcement over our school PA or like the principal did for us uh, saying that we were holding vocalist auditions at the Gillis house. And can't really remember. I, all kinds of kids showed up actually. There were, mm-hmm. I remember at, at the announcement, there were all these people in my class who looked at me in surprise to find out that they, no one knew we were, we even had a band or we were getting any of that cooking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but then the day of the audition, there were like five, five or six people who showed up, except for one guy, one guy and all girls, uh, your friend Glenda's brother. Of course. My friend Glenda's brother. That's right. Yeah. Mike, Mike Roberts, who looked like Elvis Presley and did, uh, what was the song he did? I have no idea. What's that Elvis song? Something shoes. Blue suede shoes. Blue suede shoes. I think he did blue suede shoes. Oh, wow. Wow. It was such a weird <laughs> mix of people who showed up. Another girl, Carrie, showed up and did Stand By Me. Uh, and then our friend Tammy showed up and did a Liaren song. So she was kind of in the top spot for a vocalist for the band. Right. And then at some point, we so like the, the rest of the band, we, I remember sitting there in the basement watching each person sing. And they just sang along to like a tape in a tape deck. And we all had little tally sheets <laughs> making making our evaluations. And then after everyone ended, uh, like went went home, we got together and like tried to figure out who the best singer would be for the band. And then we just decided to not pick anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember we told everyone we would let them know either way. <laughs> and making all these sad calls afterwards being like yeah sorry we decided not to have a vocalist so that's how close we got we got really close to actually having vocals in the band when you listen to someone with a golden voice like that of tony decker of great lake swimmers you forget while being lulled by the gentle and expressive ease of his songs that making a career in music can be a grind and can require a dogged determination and iron will You forget that so many musicians began their careers while holding down full-time jobs. Tony was no exception. In this segment, he paints a map of the Toronto music landscape of the early 2000s, when music was becoming real for him. He played shows wherever and whenever he could get them, moving from venue to venue, his trusty acoustic guitar in hand. He did the tireless work, and it paid off. You'll also hear how around the same time he began recording in a grain silo close to his hometown of Waynefleet, Ontario, recordings that ultimately led to the debut self-titled Great Lake Swimmers album. What this shows me and why it made an impression on me is that it shows someone willing to work outside the box, to think creatively and trust their own vision. As a result, Tony and his bandmates managed to capture the reverberant and ambient sounds that became such a signature of the band. Here's Dave and Tony. As you start doing releases, playing some shows, what was the point where you could tell where music was becoming a real thing? Meaning you you, you used to go, this, this, is, this is real now for me, and I, can, I feel like this is something that's going to go to what it became. I guess it kind of starts in in like in in London, Ontario, when I was going to Western, and I had kind of started writing songs there in a more a more serious kind of way, I guess. Uh, but it wasn't really until I moved to Toronto um, that I started just playing. I mean, I think I played every little club in Toronto the first couple of years that I moved there, uh, around two thousand, two thousand and one, um, two thousand and two, kind of in that. So um, I came out of school with a, a pretty enormous uh, student debt. So I needed to kind of like get a job right, right away. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so I worked for a film company for about three years uh, during that time in, in, in Toronto while sort of like just sort of writing songs and playing out in little places, you know, like graffitis. And there was the, the Cafe May, which is now the local in Roncesvalles in Toronto and Free Times and a bunch of little places on College Street. Let's see, uh, Jason Collette's series was going at that time. I went to check out that a bunch at the uh, yes. at Ted's wrecking Ted's wrecking yard uh, and later Ted's Ted's garage, I guess is what they called it. And uh, 
there was, I mean, it was really good timing, I think, because Toronto in the early 2000s was just starting to really be noticed as a, as a music place and uh, Broken Social Scene had just started and the Arcade Fire had just released their first little EP and were playing at Sneaky D's and the Wavelength Music Series was happening once, once a week there. But um, yeah, like all through all of, throughout that time, I think from about maybe 2001 in the summertime and then maybe even earlier than that, I'd kind of started making these tracks um, with a friend uh, down in Waynefleet, um, actually close to my parents' place, because I knew about this old sort of abandoned silo on this old abandoned yes. farm out in yes. the nowhere. And we spent about two years just like making tracks out there and and at a certain point had to decide whether we were going to like, like we literally had to bring in like a power generator and, and do all this stuff to, there was no power out there. It was just literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so we spent about two years kind of tracking songs. And at a, at a certain point we had to just decide whether we were going to keep all of that ambient sort of like environmental sound that was coming through. Uh, Cause the idea was really just to get like some, like a cool field recording, like a cool location recording with some nice big, you know, unusual reverb on it. Um, and so we went to this silo, this old grain silo, a concrete silo it was about 50 feet tall or something and mic'd it all up and just I went in there with an acoustic guitar and just recorded um, and had a few, uh, a few friends do a few overdubs later in Toronto, but for the most part, it was all done in, inside that space. And, um, and at the same time was just kind of playing around, playing, taking every, you know, opportunity to just play every little hole in the wall in Toronto that I could. So, and just by doing that, I feel like I crossed paths with a lot of a lot of like-minded people, and it was just a really exciting time um, to be in the city. One thing in the interview with Charles Austin of Super Friends that endeared me to him right from the start is his willingness to laugh at himself, and he has a great laugh. I also really appreciated his somewhat reluctant but nevertheless honest admission to being influenced by the band Loverboy. <laughs> As a teenager in Vancouver in the 80s, that band loomed large. I really appreciated the complex fanship many a teen had with Loverboy. And, of course, with Mike Reno's Red Headband. But 80s rock aside, the part of the conversation that I chose to highlight here is a story about Charles and his friends Drew Yamada and Matt Murphy and how they evolved to become the band's super friends. And the way in which the success of other Halifax-based musicians motivated and lit a fire under them. Artists like Al Tuck and bands like Sloan. And how Charles isn't ashamed to admit that. It seems to me that this group of quote-unquote misfits were at once self-aware, humble, but also a bit feral and free-range. Finally, I love that Charles mentions the comparison someone made of the band to the group of friends in the film Breaking Away. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Bikes and music forever. Yeah. Here's Charles. With Drew, it's just we, we have to be in going to university at the same time, and we're in the same program, and he had an acoustic guitar, and he was kind of just getting into it, which I I, I like to remind him of that a lot. No, I think it was for, for a lot of time, he's like, yeah, you showed me how to play, but he already knew how to play. And I, I uh, showed him like a few things, but he picked it up quite quickly. And we did like, you know, we'd cover like Neil Young songs and stuff at coffee houses. And, but then um, with Matt, Matt was kind of like this, like uh, as we, uh, anyone who knows Matt Murphy knows he's quite good. He was kind of like the guy who I think I went tree, <laughs> this very, this is very nineties kind of story. Uh, you know, I went one, one summer, I went tree playing I came back and the, the band I, I played guitar and mandolin in with Al Tuck, there was like, Oh yeah, we got, they got, I got to fill in. He's a lot better than you. So you're back on mandolin. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And then it's, of course it's Matt Murphy. And I'm like, well, yeah, he is a lot better than me. And um, I was just happy to know him. And we, we kind of played Matt and I played in that ensemble and drew and I had had a band um, in our second year university called rhinoplasty, which was just like a, yes. Okay. Rock band that had uh, this, but we had the, a drummer who was my um, my roommate, this guy Chris Jonah, who was like a punk drummer, and then we had a guy from uh, Toronto who Greg Greg Tamashenko, who actually uh, had a band called the uh, Leather Uppers that are kind of like a garage. Like even now, like they're still going, but in, in certain circles, people would know they'd be like a you know like the, a lot of people say that the White Stripes copied a lot of aspects of Leather Uppers. They were like a duo with matching outfits and all this stuff, and they would have played that circuit, and they were really good. Um, so great. So we had this band that was very short lived. And then, um, then after that, 
that the right after rhinoplasty stopped and the Altuck thing was kind of, there's a lot of members and it was kind of a singer songwriter and, or not, it, it was acoustic based. And Matt and I were kind of like, oh, we want to play some rock and roll. And uh, Drew and Matt were talking about getting something together. And I remember playing Matt and I at his house doing hot knives or something and like getting ready to go play <laughs> a, an Altuck show and being like, you know, we we like, we get stoned before shows and we wouldn't, you know, we'd, we'd mess up and stuff. And, and that we were looking at, we were talking about Sloan. I was like, do you think those guys get high before a show? And Matt's like, probably not. Probably <laughs> so it was, not. Like, <laughs> probably, it was more like, okay, like maybe talk, like, you know, you're like 22, 23, like maybe, or I forget. We were probably about 23. It's like, okay, well, are we just going to like do this thing? That's not super like, that's not our own thing. Cause it, it like Al had, it was Al's, Al's band and he was a songwriter and it was like a very like Dylan kind of type thing that he was doing and we were just kind of like well we you know we wanted to do something so it's more like i i feel like with matt and i it was like almost like we were like kind of like the these kind of sidemen dudes who were learning the ropes kind of kicking around and we're uh he kind of bonded together out of we we're seeing our friends like doing really well and uh we were kind of like oh man we got to get something together like we felt like kind of like we were missing out or we were we were kind of um I heard someone describe that Super Friends band as like breaking away, like the misfits that come together. And I, that kind of, it kind of is pretty accurate. I think we are all are like kind of a bunch of misfits who kind of banded together to do something. You, although it might not be like super apparent if you just listen to music, but it's, but uh, there was an element of desperation to it for sure. <laughs> this interview is singer songwriter and producer Peter Elkis of the band Local Rabbits is jam-packed with great stories and laughs. The selection I've chosen demonstrates how having a good sense of humor and understanding of irony is really helpful when you're a band starting out or a band at any stage of your career for that matter. That coupled with an endless supply of energy and as Peter describes it, no qualms. Big shout out to my good friend Ryan Meishral, who was the bass player in Local Rabbits and who is one of the finest human beings I know. I really wish I'd caught a show by Local Rabbits when they toured out west, but somehow they flew under my radar. Or maybe they hopped. Anyhow, if you listen to the full episode, you'll be treated to a hilarious story about how Ryan and Peter each have a totally different memory of a body-slamming incident in the pool at the Toronto Sheraton Hotel. (laughs) In the meantime, here's Peter to talk about stage diving, cowboy hats, and the I Hate Local Rabbits Club. What? And you you just seemed so unbelievably young and yeah. you were just full of energy, like compared to anyone there, we were all pretty young, but you guys really had a certain energy to you, all of you. And it was uh, very, very memorable. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I, we were very energetic and at those, in those times, uh, our drummer was still Brian Waters, who was uh, really kind of pretty integral to that energy that you're talking about in terms of like trying to have not trying, just having fun and inserting ourselves into every situation we came, came upon. And so I do, I totally remember hanging out in the basement there um, and having fun. And I also remember, I think I tried to stage dive uh, (laughs) when someone was playing, like we had no qualms. We could have called our band no qualms (laughs) instead of local rabbits. I had no qualms about just going on stage when someone else was playing and I jumped into the, to the audience. And I remember I had this cowboy hat that had been my uncle's and I was wearing that. And that was part of the thing too, was just like, try to stick out. And it wasn't like a strategy or anything. It was just what we were like. Um, and so wearing a cowboy hat was kind of, wasn't common or anything. It was, and I just thought it was a fun hat. And I, I remember I, I dived into the crowd and the kind of head first and sort of bonked my head into people like I didn't really get caught like I didn't know how to do it or anything you know and it was embarrassing and hurt and like that uh, that's the feeling I would leave those situations a a lot with would be like embarrassed and hurt also running into a young woman who said local rabbits yeah we have a club it's called I hate local rabbits and and yeah and she even had like a little pin like a that said it on it and I was like what but she was telling it to me in a way where she thought I should enjoy it and so I kind of did because I caught her meaning and I was just like, that's hilarious, whatever. <laughs> uh, but I, I also was like, why do you hate local rabbits? Anyway, yeah, I remember that. As with most of the Salad Days episodes, there are many parts I could have focused on for the purposes of this show. 
In this interview, one part in particular that stood out for me was when Matthias talks about how he was the best dishwasher in Peterborough and how working in restaurants is great for touring musicians. Never rule out the dish pit, kids. However, I chose the following segment because it's about keyboards and I'm a keyboard player. So this is close to my heart. I've never been much of a collector of gear, but I love hearing Ariel and Matthias talk about how the role of keys changed over time on various albums, and how gradually they began expanding their collection, seeking out mostly lo-fi and cheaper keyboards that now populate their home, including one made by an air conditioning company. Here are Ariel and Matthias of The Burning Hell. Well, okay, so... In the beginning, in the early, early days of the band, there were lots of keyboards happening. Uh, Michael Duguay and Jordy Gordon in particular played a lot of keys on a few different records. But then Ariel and I moved to Newfoundland and we started recording with a new crew out there. And there, we didn't, we didn't have a, a dedicated keyboard player. And then we discovered that one of the folks we were playing with, who was our, our drummer, Jake Nickel, uh, was also an incredible uh, keyboard player. And so in future records, he started um, playing a lot more keys. Um, but Ariel, like in the People and Public Library album eras. Yeah, I, I think for those two records, uh, keys were maybe just more like, oh, there's um, a piano in the studio. This song could use a little bit of piano or uh, we do like a funny little organ intro. But I don't, I can't remember keys being like a major part of people public library or revival beach but then uh since matthias and i bought a house we realized that now we have lots of space to put keyboards and other instruments in so our palette has greatly expanded <laughs> now that we have space and are not living out of suitcases all over the world um, yeah yeah most mostly with pretty cheap stuff like i i love cheap keyboard sounds much more than what i would think of as like professional sounds you know like we don't have a Rhodes or, or or a proper we don't even have a proper acoustic piano um but we've got lots of uh you know old casios old yamaha crappy things um some wonky old organs um an incredible uh keyboard called a ream ream uh started as an air conditioning company but at some point they wow. thought why don't we we should make keyboards too because that <laughs> makes sense and uh, it, you know, they're all really janky and kind of dirty and 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 crusty sounding. But um, that's that's what I'm always drawn to. So the last couple records, Garbage Island, and then the duo album that Ariel and I made called Never Work, uh, feature a lot of um, a lot of those cheap, cheap keyboard sounds. In this conversation between the two drummer Daves, Dave Ulrich talks about the things he's learned from Dave Clark, aphorisms that he calls Dave Clarkisms. Humbly, Dave Clark credits some of those to one of his most important mentors, his drum teacher, and coincidentally Dave Ulrich's drum teacher, Jim Blackley. And he talks about how the right comment from a friend or insight from a teacher can set you on a path that you follow for the rest of your life, as long as you're open to hearing it. I love the mutual admiration between the two Daves here and how Dave Clark finds a way to show us the bigger picture, engaging his wonderful sense of humanity and kindness to deliver a super positive message. When you came into our life, it was kind of like uh, we were very open to what you were saying and we really mm. listened and took it to heart. And I always, I always talk about different kind of Dave Clark-isms that we've stick to us to this day, whether it be something like buying the musician's earplugs yeah, whether man. it's whenever you play, you, you said a great one, which is whenever you play with a band, of course, you, if you're playing on a bill, you stay and watch all the bands. And then you said, if, if you see a drummer that's not playing well, you said, just don't, do not watch the drummer. I remember that was one of your lines. Like basically just don't, you just pick up bad habits, you know, and, and there was, there was so many of these that you've you know imparted over the years. Uh, that, you know, they still stick with me today. It's, it's amazing. And I think we were just, as you said, really receptive to it. Um, so, so it's a tip of the hat, you know? Well, thanks Dave. A lot of those kind of aphorisms or whatever, uh, came from people who shared them with me. Like that one, that one about, uh, about the drummer thing was from my drum teacher, Jim Blackley. And he said, laddie, if you see a drummer who sounds and looks uncomfortable, but I've your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny that you brought up Jim because uh, you also uh, there was a very brief period where you 
sort of connected me and recommended me to to doing uh, just a few series of lessons with Jim. And I know you you spent a lot of a lot of time with him. I was I was you know just a passing ship in the night kind of thing. But well, you know, like uh, my experience with lessons of any type have been sometimes it can be one sentence or one year, and you can get just as much out of it, or maybe more, depending on where you are. Again, if you're receptive and uh, with Jim, it was the right person at the right time. I needed it. I had a lot of uh, hardship with regard to my dad kind of uh, kicking off and, and not really happening anymore in life. And uh, I still needed that kind of, that kind of mentorship yeah. from an adult. And, uh, and also, I, was, I wanted to move on to the next place musically. And I studied with Jim first for two years. And I had a thought in my head on my last lesson. Uh, geez, I think I'm done. And hand comes down on my shoulder and Jim says, lad, sounds like you're done. And, <laughs> and it freaked me out. It freaked me out. And he said, uh, you've got, you've got my number. Uh, you call me anytime, go off and play. He said, you know, you, you know, this, this stuff will start showing up in 10 years. And he was right. It just started emanating out. And then, yeah, a decade later, I went back for another two years and it was monumental. And, and, uh, and then there was just a day where I was like, oh, yeah, okay, good. He said, well, well you know, call, call me again if you want. You, you know, you read about, like, those old blues musicians. It's like, you know, a guy says, what what were you doing for 26 years? Oh, I went and worked on a farm raising my kids. And like, then the guy comes back and has a bigger career, or the woman comes back bigger career than ever. It, it's It's all in there. Like, I will go a step further and say that everybody has music in them. And there's a possibility to with kindness and guidance or a kind of self-determination to and, and kindness toward yourself to like take little keys and open windows and doors and all of a sudden find the voice for what you want to do and the next thing you know it's there it doesn't take much and then if you're a person like yourself who's played so much these things are going to show up for the rest of your life if you want and uh that's pretty beautiful this segment from Dave's episode with drummer extraordinaire Don Kerr is a perfect example of how one path leads to another, and then another, and then before you know it, you're touring the world with all kinds of amazing bands. But what I take away from this is that Don really knew what he wanted to do at this time, and he was willing to go out and find it. Here, he talks about playing with a band called the Rhythm Twins, who eventually broke up, but how through them he met his friend and future bandmate Kurt Swinghammer. Kurt didn't need a band at the time, he was happily playing solo, but at his suggestion, Don approached a young guy that just happened to work at the same courier company as him. And that guy's name was Ron Sexsmith. And the rest is musical history. Here's the story. And then that band used to play a lot around town. And that woman's name is Britt. And her favorite person in Toronto was Kurt Swinghammer. She, mm, so yep. he, she would get him to open for the, a lot of shows. And it's, that's how I met Kurt. And I thought he was incredible as well. He's fantastic. And I so... I, that band split up, the, the couple split up, and the band split up. And uh, I went to Kurt, and I said, hey, I, I'm looking, you know, I want to play. I think you should have a band, and I want to be your drummer. And he said, uh, I don't, I'm not looking for a band right now. He was incredible playing by himself. He'd sound like a whole band. But my two best friends are both looking for bands. Like his oldest, two of his oldest friends from the Niagara region are Ron Sexsmith and Dale Morningstar. <laughs> and they were both in Toronto looking for a drummer and a bass player. Maybe he told me about Ron first, because I, I, anyway, and it, Kurt, Kurt was my uh, conduit to everything, because he mentioned Ron Sexsmith, and I was working as a courier at Sunwheel Couriers at the time, and yes. I said, I, I hear that name on the radio all day, like on the, the shortwave or whatever, the uh, CB radios at the, at work. I think he. I think I work with that guy. So I. I went and into at the end of the day. One a couple of days later, I. I asked somebody which guy's Ron Sexsmith, and he, oh, he's over there writing. You know, writing at the end of the day paperwork. And I. I looked at him and said that to myself. That guy, he's this great songwriter. Wow, that he doesn't look like. He looks so shy. And anyway, I got together with him and played. His songs were so good. And and. 
like his original material was so good. Even then, he, he hadn't put out anything. Nothing would come out for years. But he, he still had... I just was blown away by his his lyrics. And, you know, he was kind of like, like I said before, my old band, we all had tons of musical ideas and had no idea what to say. I meet this guy and he's got like a real gift and a knack and he's his his yeah and and even the covers that we jammed on on uh i was made to love her by stevie wonder and and marie i think by randy newman like two of my favorite songs of all time and he just had them like in his blood and i just thought here this guy this is the this is the guy i've been looking for i want to yeah. play with this guy he's not wondering oh can i write a song or what should i say or he's just churning out he's making it happen so i was convinced i when i jammed with ron i just thought okay this guy's brilliant and amazing and and uh you know i want to play music with him and support what he does and go along for that ride and boy did i ever from what i can tell Luther Wright has often worked in a pleasingly unorthodox way, employing his unique artistic vision and creative charm to full effect. So when he decided to recreate Pink Floyd's classic album, The Wall, with his band The Wrongs, that made total sense, to them anyway. But not to everyone, as you'll learn. Luckily, he and his bandmates stuck to the vision and it paid off. Here's how it all went down. Starting one dark and stormy night. So Luther Wright and the Wrongs came out of the Weeping Tile crew. Um, Weeping Tile so stopped playing around '98, and the Wrongs had already made the one album I talked about. And we kind of were already in the middle of making our second album, Rogers Waltz. And it was during that time when we were recording that record and planning a tour, thinking, "Well, we'll just keep the Weeping Tile van, and we'll just keep going." And Sean's diving into some grants, and we'll try to get use our connections to get gigs and one day we were doing some overdubs on rogers waltz and the power went out there's a lightning storm and the engineer robin's like i got to turn everything off for a bit so dan curtis and i were um sitting in the kitchen and we we sort of talked about that pink floyd the wall was a country record i remember sitting in the van with our guitar we're waiting somewhere and i was the wall came on, like, we don't need no education. And I just started riff on it. And like, this is just like an A minor riff. This is basic country tune. And we just started joking around and going through the songs. But anyway, on the day when the power went out, Dan and I pulled out the double vinyl and sat and <laughs> made some notes and went through all 26 songs and went like, yep, this we could be in G, this one we could do this. And basically, out of 26 songs, I think there was only one song that were like, we can't possibly make this a country tune. Country tune, why don't you just write some new music for it? That was Run Like Hell, which you kind of... yeah inspired by but it's not everything else is basically the chords from pink floyd that we make into the you know we just play them with a backbeat and halftime or double time basically double time anyway because the the wall was recorded in the late 80s so it's got four on the floor disco going on which is so trend like straight up switch to country play it in double time right so uh, it's it kind of laid itself out with it and i know uh it's obvious once you hear it. I and mean, when we started to tell people about it, they're like, you guys are smoking too much weed. Um, I remember being downstairs at the Horseshoe and I ran into Greg Keeler from Blue Rodeo. The Wrongs played lots of openers for those guys as well. But I said, to, he's like, what are you guys up to, man? I said, hey, Greg, I wanted you. we want to see if you produce a record for us. He goes, yeah, man, for sure. Because he'd been doing stuff with the Sadies and the whole deal. So he's like, yeah, man, come up to the farm. And I said, okay. And he goes, well, when do you want to do it? And I said, well, we're just, we're just uh, finishing this uh but this re-recording of Pink Floyd's The Wall is a country record and his face like falls and he just says, forget it and turns around and walks away. No way. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he, like, I didn't want him to help with that record. I was like, no, it's my, and I'm like saying, it's not that, I have my own songs and he's like, doesn't turn around. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so we just kind of, we just plugged away. Grant, uh, Grant Eche got us the same, our, our man at the Funhouse had closed by then, but Grant had a little studio in his basement on uh, Division Street. And we went to Tech Savvy and bought an eight track, half inch reel to reel and set it up in his basement. And we did all the drum tracks. We did out of the 26 tunes, we did had to do 20 drum tracks. We did them all in his basement um, on the eight track and bounced them down to two tracks. Cam Giroux did, he'd never, we'd never really practiced or rehearsed. We just 
did it all on paper. And then we, Dan and I and John, we sat with Cam and we all decided like, okay, gonna, and I played the guitar, Dan played the guitar in the control room and Cam played along and looked at his notes as to, you know, where the dumb, 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 dumb parts. And we did the whole session in two days and on drums, Cam did 12 songs in one take that are on that wow. record. And then we just took it out to Elgenburg in our little studio place there and plugged away on it for about six months. We thought we'd do it in a month and it took about six months. But once we got into it, it was like a, every layer revealed another layer and we better bring this person in. We brought Matt Woodward in to do the guitar solo on on uh, Young Lust because Dan couldn't pull off that Southern Hoser better. Anyway, we just involved as many people as we could. And then when it was all said and done, and Sarah Harmer was um, all over it. Just she's around the house, so just bringing her in to. Can you sing this? Can you do this? And anyway, by the time we um, got it all, we got it all uh, mixed out at uh, Dave Lindsay's in Sydney, Sydney, and Robin and I and Sean are. Just, uh, we drive up to Hamilton and we piece it all together. And we've had all. It wasn't just the album, but there's all the in between song stuff, like the chicken noises and the talking, and all the the story behind the wall. We switched it over to like a country boys version, as opposed to a war <laughs> yeah. war child from Britain. It's more like his like um, Pink is like some hillbilly kid who goes to the big city. So we took that and anyway, pieced it, did all those foley bits, and then pieced it all together. And I remember sitting with our friend Steve Dahl and Sean and I and Robin, and we played it from beginning to end for the first time. And just looking at each other like, wow, this totally works. This totally works. So, and then, uh, you know, we made the mistake of playing it for some people. And next thing we got to deal with Universal and a deal with this record company in the States. And uh, it just kind of took on its own life. But it, it opened a lot of doors for us. I mean, we immediately, we played one or two shows where we played the whole record. Oh, no, let me, I guess the best part of the story is we finished it all. We took it and our friend, our man Skinny, who became our manager, Oh, skinny. Offered, yeah, Skinny 10, RIP, that's when I passed. Um, skinny kind of gave us, the, like, I can, this thing, you know, we'll, we can walk, work this, and Universal will get you guys, you know, tour money and all this stuff you need to get going. Um, and I went back and had the meeting, and Dan Curtis specifically was very much like, I don't know. <laughs> he was like, didn't those your deal stories with Weeping Town aren't they're not very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shut up, man. Anyway, um, we did agree on it, uh, but on the one condition that the label, I write a letter to Roger Waters and the Pink Floyd guys, and we say, hey, here's what we did, and here's why. Do you approve of it? So, and they said, if they if they don't, then we don't really want to, we don't want to put our name to it because we don't want to just be a cover band. We're not, we're probably not going to play all these songs live, whatever, you know, we just, we don't care that much about fame and we're not really those guys that are just going to do this unless Roger Waters says it's okay. So after a couple of months, things were getting built up, but we still hadn't really signed the deal. And then we finally got an email back saying Rogers listens to the record and approves. And then the other guys, Nick Mason and, Dave Gilmore and uh, the other fella and uh, Bob Ezrin sent me a nice email. So once we had all that in our arsenal, then it was we knew we were going to go play all over North America. But, you know, there's always going to be some crazy Pink Floyd fan who's going to get all up in our business because he hates country. So I wanted to be able to say, like, you know, fuck off, man. Roger Waters says it's fine. Like, who cares? Like, so we, um, that was our that was that was handy. As anyone who's been in a band knows... Touring and playing live can be a total high or a total grind, and there are so many factors that can make or break the experience, including the attitude or influence of the other bands you share the bills with. Stephen Lamke and his band The Constantines toured pretty much incessantly for several years in the early 2000s. Dave Ulrich and his band The Inbreds did the same a few years before, so he understands what that's like. Here, Dave and Stephen talk about the ups and downs and in-betweens of life on the road. What are your, what's your feelings about touring then? Basically, did you like it as an activity was it, or was it torture? And maybe now or in recent years, you know, like uh, what's, what's your feeling personally on touring? I like, I think I mostly really liked it, but then I also do remember being really miserable and unhealthy a lot, so I don't know. Yes. Yes. Um, and I guess kind of the same. I don't tour, like, I don't, I still tour a little bit, and I have the longest tour I've done in years coming up next month, but like, I don't tour like we did in sort of 2003, 4, 5, 6, whatever. You know, like, we were just, the Constantines were doing 
so much touring. And it's in high-energy band, and it's like, it took its toll for sure. I like going places. I like going places with a purpose, you know, and I like meeting people under, like, the sort of parameters of, like, hey, we're here to do the show or whatever, you know, and, like, that's why we're in this town. And then people kind of interact with you in a certain way, and that's cool. Like, I like that. Like, it gives you a sense of why you're there, and it gives you access to different kinds of conversations or something. So that element of touring is incredible. Getting to practice your thing every day, you know, it's yes. amazing. Of the tours that you did, was there any one band that you went out with that was just the best? Uh, I mean, we toured with the Weaker Thans a lot, who are fantastic, obviously. We toured with a band called Oneida from the States. Yeah, um, yeah. They were incredible, like, so dialed into a very particular energy and, like, kind of showed us how to do certain things, I would say, like, with, like, repetition and with just, like, push, just push, 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 let's see, what, see where you end up kind of thing. Like, they loosened us up in that way, for sure. We were big fans of Royal City. Like, that's how we connected with Three God, and, like, they accessed some really cool things and, like, were really connecting some cool things, like, doing a pretty sparse, like, folk thing, but then doing, like, Iggy Pop covers, you know, and screaming on stage and, like, it was a cool mix of stuff. Because was it, you know, there was, there's that point where you go from getting opportunities opening up for for people. And these days, music festivals is way more of a, and we'll talk about that, but way more of a thing, I think, today even than it was, you know, 20, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's that, when you transition to doing your own shows and or being able to bring somebody out with you, like oh, an, op- an opener or a co-headliner or something it's such a big deal to be do your first lee's palace show or something like that totally um totally you know do do you remember particularly in toronto what was the what was that show or it was your own headlining show and you were like this this is just so great i do remember like uh, i don't think it was the first time we played lee's palace but it was probably the first time we sold out lee's palace like a show which i think was maybe the release show for like an ep that we did a three-song ep that came out between the first and second record came out on a a label out of the States called Suicide Squeeze. And I think the show was a release show for that. And it was just crazy. The energy was just totally, totally crazy and awesome. So I couldn't decide which sample from this interview to highlight. There are so many delightful snippets. Therefore, I chose two. And they're kind of like bookends. The first is Jose Contreras describing the first music he ever heard as a child specifically that of the legendary and heroic Chilean folk singer Victor Jara, who sang until his last note was silenced by Pinochet's army. The second segment is Jose describing a gig one winter night in Peterborough, Ontario with his band by Divine Right, where, partly inspired by the Inbreds and their album Combinator that had recently been released, he decided to turn his negative assumptions upside down to battle his insecurities and he emerged victorious. This goes out to anyone who's ever changed for a midwinter bar gig in a beer closet. Um, there was tons of music in my house always growing up. And the very first music I heard was Chilean folk music, which to this day is just so powerful. New, nueva canción, new song from the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Was so powerful and so fucking cool. Uh uh, you know, I actually just, the last record I ordered on Discogs was a Victor Jara record, um, which is just so progressive and fresh and new. And, you know, it's spiritual, it's political, it's, it's, uh, subversive. It's also like got that it's for everyone vibe, like Bob Marley, hopeful energy, you know, uh, um, it's anti-corporate and it's, um, populist too like everyone loved Victor Jara which is why during the military coup they killed him like imagine like there was a, you know what I mean where like the, uh, the kind of artist that you go after so yeah. that's that's the vibe I get on a Friday night you know like like uh, when you guys made is it Combinator yeah, yeah the one that really market. took it over the edge right when you guys yes. made that I didn't know that anyone was going to make cool records I didn't think that any of us were going to make cool records. Now, I loved Hilario. I loved Darn Foul Dog. I, ha- I still have the T-shirt. See, because we'd seen how many cool bands had we already looked up to 
that had gone nowhere. Yeah. So I assumed no one was going anywhere. And so I, therefore I had no ambition. You know, I was like, why was I doing it? I have no idea. I imagine that when I was old, like 30, I would be painting and having children, like be a painter okay. somewhere, have children, you know, like I didn't assume that I'd still be like, you know, like not even an adult at 30, let alone like now still making records at 53, you know, like, and, and still don't feel like I'm done. So, <clears throat> so the combinator did have a big impact in my life. Cause I was, and then Hayden made that record at the same time, uh, who I went to high school with, right? Paul, me right. and Paul went to high school together. So between you guys and, and him, I was like, I'm going to make a record too. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try also. And it was instantaneously, you know, and it comes down to a show that I was playing in Peterborough that I was like taking my long johns off before the show. Cause it was winter, right? Uh, winter in 96, early 96. And, uh, I was like, Oh fuck. You know, the band that just played was so fucking cute. They were adorable. Their songs were great. There was, they were all very cute and, and everyone, they had a local scene. Everyone loved them. And I was like, Oh man, that band's so good. Everyone's going to leave when we start playing except for like two dudes. And we're going to sell one cassette and there's going to be another dude from the station that talks to us. And it's going to be like, we're losers, right? We're just losers. We're not cute. And, and then I thought to myself, I was like, you know, you know, when you take your long johns off where like the club keeps like the beer, the big beer tanks or whatever, <laughs> you know, right, like okay. you're yeah, like yeah. in some, you're in a closet, right? Like there's like a mop yeah. next to you. Like I'm not describing like a, the backstage. Right. And, and then I thought to myself, you know what? Fuck that. You know what? We're great. We're going to play. This is going to be the best show we ever play. Everyone's going to love it. And we're going to play great. These songs are great. And you know what? That was the first show that went really great. And everyone loved it. And everyone stayed. I still know those people. That was a real, that, that's the day that you're asking me, when did I know it was real? That's the day I knew it was real. Chris Adney, a.k.a. Wax Mannequin, admits that he has often been challenged, as many creative people are, by his own brain and how he interacts with the world. But luckily, he's been able to channel his idiosyncratic tendencies into songs and music. In this segment, he talks to Dave about his 1999 embryonic track called Things to Do with Rage, which has since been re-recorded on his 2023 album, The Red Brain. His unpacking of the recording process is chock full of fascinating descriptions, such as twisting the circuitry of vintage Casios to make new sounds, or employing PZM microphones in unorthodox ways. It's like a science fictional musical world where William Gibson is the conductor. So this was, yeah, from that era uh, when I just started playing, started getting getting hooked on playing out in front of people. I did a show in London that my friend Joey uh, Balducci had organized. A friend of his came out, Edwin Burnett, and recorded the show, and uh, we really hit it off. Uh, ended up making a little four-track record together. He had an old Fostex four-track that he sped up, so the tape would zip by, burn through like a 40-minute cassette in 10 minutes or something, um, just to, you know, so it would be super high resolution, uh, uh, and it just, in his mind, could increase the fidelity of the sound a little right. bit. Sure, sure. So we were rocking that, and I'd, my nylon string, I remember we had a PZM microphone, which is like a, a room mic, this flat room mic you're supposed yes. to stick on the wall. I remember uh, those. The realistic, legendary, realistic PZM. I'm at Radio Shack, but they're these studio, secretly studio quality uh, PZM mics. And what we do is stick for for cheap, cheap. And we'd, I, I taped it under the strings of my nylon string, so it kind of picked up the whole sound of the body, and the strings would kind of vibrate right over top of the plate. Um, and that was, it's still a trick I use sometimes to record my nylon string guitar. And it was Edwin's uh, wizardry that came up with that idea, of course. And, uh, he was at that time really into circuit bending old Casios and they were readily available in the early 2000s and in 1999, late nineties, early two thousands. You could just go to the 
secondhand stores and pick up three, you know, Casios that, that today would be worth lots more <laughs> because they yeah. were, there's a whole subculture of, of, of twisting the circuitry around and getting weird sounds out of these, these old keyboards. So we relied on that for um, a couple of records to carry us through uh, with our experimental urges. So there's that in the background of that song, some clicking and uh, delayed rhythm track from a Casio. And yeah, so we, that song, I don't know. I I read a lot of songs about the brain and my frustrations interfacing with people in the world all along. I had Um, really before I'd really thought about the use of any diagnosis or, or, uh, you know, supporting, trying to, trying to, you know, hack the ways my brain worked for the better. Um, I would, I would write songs from that perspective and, uh, and, you know, thinking back, a lot of the tunes were about, yeah, just uh, trying to find my way as, you know, every musician, every creative person has a, has a probably the idiosyncratic way of uh, interacting and interfacing with the world. But a lot of my songs were about that, that one more than any. So I put it on the new record, a new version of it. And I try to um, subtly harken back to some of the techniques used in the first. I love hearing about people's earliest musical influences, and it's great that Dave chooses to highlight the formative years of his guests as part of each episode. Learning about someone's early family life adds such a colourful dimension to the interview. I've distilled two longer segments into one here so that you can get a concentrated snapshot of young Taylor Knox at home in Aurora, Ontario, long before he would perform with bands like Always, Sloan, Hayden, Owen Pallett, Rich O'Coin, or The Beaches, and how his family creatively and generously responded to his obvious obsession with all things music. My parents were both very musical. Um, my mom studied music in university, and so she would always tell me that when, you know, I became obsessed with music at an early age, and she would always say, well, I used to play the piano for you when you were, you know, you're still in the womb. So maybe that's where you got it from. Yeah, and then yeah. um, my dad was in a, kind of a high school band in the 60s doing, you know, the hits of the day, which is like Beatles and Van Morrison. And I think they even did a Stone song. So he and then he kind of in his early 20s, he did a couple of summers in like a traveling folk group where he was the guitar player and there's like maybe 10 or 15 singers. So there's definitely like music in in my uh in, around the house a little bit and my my earliest memory is being three years old and um, learning how to work the record player yeah um, i was obsessed with the album london town by wings wow and um which is very cheesy but still just like still just melts me like i just love it so much even though like I, intellectually i listen to it i think like oh man paul is such a cheese ball by this point uh my heart just goes like oh but this is the best thing i've ever heard you know and so I remember asking my dad, like, wh- okay, so then from that led to an obsession with the Beatles. Um, and I remember saying to my dad, like, what do you remember? Like, why was I so drawn to the Beatles? And he said, I don't know. He said, I think you just liked the Wings album. And then you liked it so much. I just thought, well, you know, when you're a little kid, all you want to hear is the same thing over and over. He said, I probably just got sick of it. And I thought, well, if you like Wings, maybe you like this guy's other band, you know? <laughs> Okay, so you're so you're in the house. What is what is the first uh, instrument that you uh, actually got of your own or were given? Oh yeah, I remember this clear as day. I was asking for a guitar. I would always like kind of even as a little little kid, I would take my dad's guitar and just kind of like you know put it on my lap and kind of whack the strings. Yeah. And then I even had like a um, a little toy plastic guitar, which was my pride and joy when I was three or four. And then I had like a little. There's a photo of me with a little kind of kid's toy drum set also around that age. So like I was just obsessed, but I'm sure I was asking my parents for a guitar for Christmas all the time. And then eventually when I was, I think around eight, like around grade three, my grandpa got me a baritone ukulele because he went to the store and said, you know, my, my eight year old grandson wants a guitar. What do you recommend? And they said, "Ooh, well, that's pretty. You know, a guitar will be pretty big for him. Why don't you try this baritone ukulele? It's kind of a miniature guitar. Wow! And it's basically a. Uh, it is a miniature guitar. It's like a lot bigger than a, a normal ukulele, but still like you know less than half the size of an acoustic guitar. 
the interesting thing about it is that it's tuned to the same, the exact same notes as the the highest four strings on a regular guitar. Ah. So that's so smart because I was I was learning how to play the guitar, but just from my tiny fingers, you know, on a tiny neck, and it was just like it was four out of the six strings of every chord. So I kind of had it was a really smart move, and I, I guess whoever was at that music store that suggested that I was a good suggestion, you know. <laughs> if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know about the segment that Dave calls music becoming real. That is, that point when someone begins to realize that music has become their primary career. And if you know the music of Dave Merritt and his band The Golden Seals, you know that he's a supremely gifted musician, a stellar songwriter, and awesome producer. It seems only natural that someone like him should be making a living at music, right? Well, for Dave Merritt, music became real in reverse. I'll let him explain. Fun fact, though, this story involves Dave Ulrich's old bandmate from the Inbreds, Mike O'Neill. It also involves a lot of Dave's. When, when you think of the concept of music becoming real, what do you think of in terms of your, your time playing? It just switched into something that you thought, this is what I'm going to do for my rest of my life. Uh, it's so much easier for me to um, talk about the, the reverse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, you know, like when it was, I, I think there was probably a six year stretch where I thought, yeah, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to, um, you know, from, from the time that Adam West released Brunswick Hotel and things started to look pretty good there. You know, we had a song on in rotation on CFNY, and then the Rios asked us to tour with them. And, uh, and then uh, Dave Clark wanted to uh, make our next record with us. And, you know, um, I remember <laughs> everybody wanted to get signed, right? In the mid-90s, like, that was the thing. Oh, my God, we're yeah. going to get signed. Everybody's going to get signed. I remember a late-night talk with Bedini and Bookman. I don't know where we were, um, but it was pretty close to the CBC studios somewhere in Toronto. And uh, Dave Bookman just said, oh, you guys are going to get signed. No, you're going to get signed. So if Dave says that, then it's like, then it's true, right? So we thought, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. we thought for sure. So it was like, shit, you know, I think maybe, maybe I'm going to be a musician, you know? And of course that never happened. Um, but then, then I went down to North Carolina for a couple of years and played in a pretty good band down there. And I, you know, I felt like I was starting to improve. Then I came back to London and made the first Golden Seals record, which I was really proud of and thought, again, thought maybe I can make a go of this. And then um, nothing really happened with the, the record. Of course it didn't. Um, and then uh, I moved to Ottawa and got a job. And this is, the, this. Is, I don't know if you know this, Dave, but, okay. but uh, yeah, so when, when Mike put out The Owl, he contacted me, and again, you know, we were talking about Dave Bookman. I think Bookman, he needed a guitar player, and uh, he was talking to Bookman about it, and Bookman said, what about Dave Merritt? So Mike said, okay, yeah, I'll give him a, a call. So he asked me to, um, to play guitar in his touring band, and I had just started this full-time job in Ottawa, but I really wanted to do it. And I, Obviously, I loved you guys, and and I I loved his that that first record, and uh, and I'd only ever toured once with the Rios back in '94, so I was excited to do it. I asked my boss for the time off, and he said no. <laughs> so I had right. to decide whether to um, you know give up this awesome musical opportunity um, and keep a full time job or ditch um, guaranteed income <laughs> and follow my musical dreams. And I, I ended up, I, I had to say no to Mike and it crushed me to do it. Um, but uh, I remember thinking right then that, yeah, you know, um, I think you just made your decision that music is going to be a hobby for you. And sure enough, it's, <laughs> that's, it's pretty, been a that's hobby. pretty funny. 
it's been a hobby for the last 25 years. Well, here we are at episode 14, which is a wonderful interview with the talented Charlotte Cornfield. This is the last segment of this special year in review episode, and I want to say a big thank you to Dave Ulrich for asking me to help co-produce and co-host the show. I've had a ton of fun. I'm looking forward to listening to many more Salad Days episodes in 2024. As always, this podcast reminds me of how much talent there is out there and how everyone's creative journey is different. There's no one path to success, nor to musical fulfillment. It's a wild and sometimes woolly journey, but it's worth it. And with that, I think I'd like to let Charlotte Cornfield take us out with some wise words. Here she is talking about what kind of advice she'd give her teenage budding musician self. Yeah, I would say slow down, stop rushing, and um, just enjoy, enjoy making music. And I think I did really enjoy making music, but I also, yeah, I, I, I was a little bit more sort of like goal oriented as a teenager than I maybe could have been. Like, I think I could have just sat in it a bit more and, and spent time alone working on stuff more. But that being said, I also loved getting out and doing stuff, but I I would just say, don't, don't be afraid to fail and try again and fail and try again. And, um, experiment and and uh and yeah I think when I listen to my earlier recordings I'm like wow it was going so fast and just trying to like it, it just feels fast to me so I think uh, stop rushing thank you Jane for the journey through some of the best stories from the past year the podcast was something new for me this year and it's been so great to reconnect with so many musicians from my musical past and or recent musical adventures I hope to continue uh, things in 2024 with many more musical friends telling stories of how and why they got into playing music. One thing I do in every episode is to ask the guest to provide an embryonic recording uh, from the early days when they first started playing music. And this helps set the tone and context for the journey into the musical memories. Meanwhile, Jane, on her uh, Music Buddy podcast, always invites the musicians to record one of their own songs in a session with the Music Buddy band. And that band is Tim Vesley from the Rio Stacks plus Jane. So these sessions always provide a fresh take on the song and bring the unique musical perspective of Jane and Tim to bolster the musical power of the uh, final result. It's always worth it to listen to the whole episode to get to these musical gems at the end. Anyway, I wanted to pay tribute to the Music Buddy session concept by doing a fresh take on one of the embryonic tracks from one of our 2023 artists. So a salad day's session, if you will. After bouncing this idea off Jane, we landed on doing I Love the Things That People Make, from The Burning Hell, as highlighted in episode 5 with Ariel Sherat and Matthias Kamm. I really enjoyed that episode, and I love their embryonic take on things that people make. Uh, but that song later appeared as a more fleshed-out version uh, on their 2008 album TikTok. So I definitely recommend you listen to the uh, Salad Days episode if you've not heard it before, and then after, be sure to listen to the song, their song on the album TikTok. Most notably for me, when I was trying to pull this one off, uh, Matthias sings very low in the early version of the track and is somewhat more high and kind of wild on the album version. So I decided to reference the album version uh, because the low low vocal was just a little bit too low for me. So I recorded uh, the guitars, the drums, and the vocals at home, then uh, passed it over to Jane and asked her to provide vocals and accordion. And then the cherry on top is the wailing lead axe work from my friend Andrew Green, who uh, worked with me in the past on several projects, including my band Egger, as well his, as his time back in Kingston with the great band The Shermans. So Andrew did the final mix, edit, cleanup, and uh, I say a big thanks to both Jane and Andrew for coming together with me to form what we can call the Salad Days Band, doing our take on the song I Love the Things That People Make. Here it is. Enjoy. <laughs> I love the 
There you have it. The Solid Days Band version of the embryonic track, I Love the Things That People Make from the Burning Hell. The lyrics on that song, you know, on every single Burning Hell song, uh, totally kick-ass. So make sure you check out their albums, buy their merch, and see them live wherever you may be. And also be sure to click and subscribe to Jane's excellent Music Buddy podcast. And thanks again, Jane, for taking the time and consideration to surface all these great stories from the past year um, doing Salad Days. And thank you to all those guests who were so gracious to give me their valuable time. Um, Please be sure to support all of the bands uh, from this past year, the music and art that they make, and be sure to see them live. I hope you have a great holiday season, and I tip my hat in the hopes that I get a chance to crack an ice-cold lemonade with each and every one of you in 2024. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunior.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made Sitting the trouble of drinking drinks and shots and doubles he said hark I'll make it sparkle and he added stuff to make it bubble lemonade day like the sparkling lemonade if it's hot I'll get a bottle even if it's not I'll Get a bottle, that is.